This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, we talk a lot about uh, a specific health uh, issue on this podcast, all about the coronavirus, but I've been seeing public health messaging coming from state governments on something a bit different, wild mushrooms and why not to eat them. And I'm just wondering if you, as a known mushroom forager, what you have to think about this. I was told as a wee boy, because we had a forest next to our house in Glasgow, not to eat any mushrooms at all. Did you see the, Did you actually see the photographs of some of those mushrooms? I mean, they were quite beautiful, but boy, you know, you wouldn't shove them into your mouth. I've got something growing in my yard that is literally neon yellow, and if that doesn't say "Don't eat me," I don't know what does. Mm, no. Well, from magic mushrooms to not so magic viruses. <laughs> A beautiful transition. Of course, this is Coronacast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 18th of May 2022. Norman, I want to flash forward for a second, not too far forward, just to Sunday morning when Australia's newest government will have been elected and whether we're looking at a re-elected government or a change of government, they're still staring down this same problem. So what are the big challenges going to be facing whoever's in government on Sunday morning when it comes to continuing to navigate the pandemic? I think one of the biggest challenges is to get the data and really deeply understand the deaths and what's going on. We're obviously not going to go back into lockdown. The political will to go back to widespread mask wearing and mask mandates is probably low at state level. But we really got to understand why people are dying and who's dying because we need an intervention. It's just unacceptable that we have this high level of daily deaths which in theory could be preventable if we distributed antivirals efficiently. But maybe they've already had antivirals and they're not working, so these are unavoidable deaths. So we, we, we need to know what proportion of these deaths are avoidable. Is, do we not know that? Because at, earlier in the pandemic, like we were having those daily press conferences, those numbers were broken down quite a lot, depending on the state. Is that data not held somewhere and just not being, we're just not seeing it because it's not coming out of those daily press conferences? There's some data on vaccination status and people who are dying, which is unsurprising. So there's a disproportionately high level of deaths amongst unvaccinated people. But if you take the total picture, because most Australians are vaccinated um, and pretty well vaccinated, um, most deaths are occurring in the vaccinated group. Most hospitalizations are. And the reason for that is that the vaccines are not perfect. First of all, they wane a bit with time. Secondly, there is a little bit of evidence coming in from the United States and the UK that the vaccine effectiveness against hospitalisation severe disease has dropped from the 90% level or above down to about 80%. And that's because as each new subvariant comes along and start, they start to look like variants of concern actually, they are highly contagious, more highly contagious than the previous subvariants. So that 20% of people who are vulnerable are putting pressure on the healthcare system. That's something the new government is going to have to grapple with. Yeah, although the federal government could just ignore it because the it's a state government responsibility in the true sense of the federation. So, but they won't they won't ignore it because they can't, and the states won't allow them to ignore it because you've got pressure in the system. You've also got pressure on the system for a serious surge in influenza, and that will put pressure on the hospital system as well. So there's a couple of things coming to mug the new government, whether it's coalition getting back or Labour. So then you've got to go back and say. Well, we know that there's going to be a lot of people who are vaccinated 
um, less vaccine effectiveness? Do we put in a fourth booster for everybody? That's going to be a decision that Otagi is going to have to make and the government will probably put pressure on Otagi along those lines or should probably. Based on what? That's a really good question because the Israelis would say there's not a lot of good arguments for giving the fourth dose to under 60s from their experience. But there will be pressure for fourth doses, but there is some evidence that each booster dose gets a little less effective than the one before. That's beyond three. You want to get three. So that's one decision. Another decision, another thing that they need to know is how many of these people who are dying have had antivirals within the first five days? And the hypothesis would be not many. If it is 100% or 80%, then it suggests the antivirals may not be as effective as they have been touted to be, but they probably are. And if they're not getting to people, how can you get to people more effectively? Can you put pharmacists in the field and allow pharmacists to prescribe these? Now, the problem with that is that it's complex prescribing. So, for example, Paxlovid is a problem if you've got some critical drugs interact with it. Secondly, if you've got reduced kidney function, Paxlovid is a problem. Therefore, in aged care, Paxlovid is difficult to prescribe, whereas molnupiravir is easier to prescribe. Molnupiravir is harder to prescribe in younger people because we don't know its safety in, um, in women of childbearing age. So these are not easy things, but we need to mobilise a public health response to these deaths every day. So that's the acute phase of the illness that we've been sort of grappling with and trying to come to terms with. But what about a longer-term picture for the government? Well, a longer-term picture would be pandemic planning for what's going to happen from now on, which, if the past is anything to go by, is every six months we get a new variant. And the question is, what, what, if, what effect is that new variant going to have? And the new variant will be more contagious, more vaccine-resistant, and... What are the government's plans for acquiring vaccines? How can we speed up development of existing existing second-generation vaccines that are on the table? A whole series of things on on several fronts. And actually taking action on ventilation, indoor mask wearing, so that we're actually more prepared. We seem to have behaved as though the pandemic is over when we need to be paying attention to indoor environments much more than we have. And we're entering winter. There's a few things on the table. What about the knock-on effects to the rest of the healthcare system? The hospital system is groaning in every state. People staying in ambulances, people who are seriously ill. Somebody was telling me, it's just an anecdote, last week in a private emergency department in a very good private hospital, same thing as in public hospitals. People uh, waiting for a bed with seriously acute illnesses that require emergency surgery. This is a strain on the whole hospital system. And so you don't, when, you hist- when the system's operating at 100% capacity without COVID and you add COVID and you add flu, it tips over. So Norman, we've got time for a question or two, maybe just one. Kelly's asking, uh, our daughter tested positive on a rapid antigen test. They then had a PCR test the same day and it came back negative. 48 hours later. So they tested again via a rat and it was positive again. Does this mean the PCR test wasn't done properly? In theory, the PCR is more accurate and you should be able to rely on that more on the rat test. But two positive rats, 
the problem here is there's variability almost certainly between the manufacturers. We're still waiting on the TGA publishing independent research by the Doherty on these rat tests to know which manufacturers are more reliable than others. It is a known phenomenon that you get false positive rats. Two false positives in a row is, would probably be unusual. It's just hard to know how to advise but in theory, you should be able to rely on the PCR and if you're in doubt, get another PCR done. And if you've got symptoms, stay home either way. Yeah, well, the problem here is that the public health orders or advice from state governments often said you don't need to get a test on the way out. if you Once you've been seven days, I mean, they vary between states, but once you've gone seven days or so, you can actually go out. What Kelly's doing is being responsible here and wanting to be negative before she's allowing her daughter to go out. So it's very hard to it's very hard to actually advise, but I would suggest another PCR if you're worried rather than a rat. And then one more question from Asa, who says they've been diagnosed with COVID twice this year, January fourth and May fifth. Is this the future? COVID every four or five months? Asa says they're fully vaccinated as they can be, and although having COVID has stretched the intervals out, the only consolation is that while the first episode was horrible and quite scary, the current one is very mild. Well, delighted to hear that, Asa. It's quite possible that in January you had Delta and that now the second one was Omicron, particularly if it was quite severe back in January because there was still a fair bit of Delta around in January. And there are increasing reports of reinfection with Omicron as the new subvariants emerge. So it is possible that we will get reinfected by um, by COVID. Remember, remember, this is still a very young virus evolutionary-wise. And it's going to take a while to get into balance with this or into a rhythm and a routine. And the rhythm will be disrupted. And the best way to think about it, almost certainly moving forward, is that it's going to be a bit like the influenza, where we come into balance with it with vaccination and previous infection. The variants that emerge will be not terribly severe, and therefore we can cope with them. But every so often, a potentially pandemic version of COVID will re-emerge in the same way as it does with influenza. And the question is, once we get into this, this rhythm, it'll be unpredictable when a pandemic version will emerge. But pandemic versions will almost certainly emerge in the future, as we know it will with influenza. Is it going to be every five years, every 10 years, every 100 years? We simply don't know at this stage. But we can, just like we're lots of us, many thousands of us are getting influenza right now, and we've had influenza in the past. That's what's going to happen with COVID, and just how often it's going to happen, we can't predict. And that's why surveillance is so important, like the way we do with influenza. But that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. Norman and I will be back in your feed again next Wednesday. And we won't eat a single mushroom until then. <laughs> <laughs> 